Ignition sequence starts. Three, two, one. Welcome back to University, everybody, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about Earth, existence, and the unknown. I'm AJ Perrin. With me, as always, is my co-host... Judson Martin. And with me again um, from last episode is... Nate Pinto. Nate Pinto, guys. Today, we're going to be continuing our conversation from the computing episode and rolling into quantum computing, because that's really the next where the next big leap is. Uh, well, let's get back on the right track and roll right into news did you guys see the thing about like the alien corpse that I think so was revealed? Is that the the video that you? No, or? I made the video. I made the joke about it where it was like cake or whatever. But no, there there was an actual. That is like a corpse that a government like revealed, saying that it, Nate, look up guy, come on. Like, I got you. I'm the look up guy. What am I looking up? Just look up about the corpse that the alien corpse or whatever like that. Because there's there's legit an uproar because people thought. But that it was a cake. No, that was just a joke. Like somebody okay, made it. Okay, I'm confused then. How'd you guys not hear about this? Because it's probably fake. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it's definitely fake. But like, <laughs> well, there was an actual agency that came out and was like, yeah, we have an alien. And they were lying. So apparently, uh, a couple weeks ago, this one guy presented two mummified specimens to the Mexican Congress that he claims are the bodies of extraterrestrial beings. Okay, so it wasn't the government exactly that showed them off, but some guy was showing them to the government. Yeah. But here's why I think I knew it was fake immediately when I saw it because they had been pre- like the dirt that the alien was laying in when they were showed off in front of the yeah. court or whatever, the dirt that it was laying in was preserved, meaning they like scooped under the alien, right, to preserve how it was laying. But the alien was just laying like perfectly like arms at side and feet. at So that means either it was obviously fake and the person didn't understand that a per- thing that dies isn't going to die exactly in a that position or the person moved it. And then if they were willing to move it, then they wouldn't have kept the dirt underneath it. Probably. So it know. was it was just weird. Interesting. But I'm so confused how you didn't hear about that because I know you go on Instagram. Let's uh, roll into the second piece of news. So we have um, NASA sent out in 2016 a rocket that was going to land a spacecraft onto the surface of an asteroid um, to collect samples from that asteroid. And apparently it's more valuable for us to go to an asteroid sample than something like a comet because asteroids are the thing that contain minerals from throughout the universe rather than just kind of balls of ice like a comet would be so we've collected materials from the surface of this asteroid and for the past couple years it's been on its way back to earth and it will be landing this sunday i think like late at night or something like that and so we're going to get the first ever samples from an asteroid that are that was outside of the solar system and who knows what those findings are going to uncover maybe we'll have a new element that actually like i was thinking about that well, okay, probably not exactly <laughs> vibranium, but I was thinking about that. I was like, how impressive would it be if the thing we find is actually a structure made up of stuff we've never seen before or ad- elements that we know in a combination that we've never seen before? Right, because obviously we have, and we're learning about this in thermodynamics, we have pressure and volume and all those effects, but 
in different circumstances, which maybe even the planets having a gravitational effect on us or anything like that in different solar systems, the way that those laws work and just the different influences on certain aspects could very well right, change up the total makeup. That kind of your point about changing the makeup kind of leads me into the last piece of news that I have, which is that we were pointing the James Webb Space Telescope out at a planet. And what we found actually by analyzing, so James Webb Space Telescope analyzes the wavelength of light that is hitting it or something like that. And um, so when light travels through the atmosphere of a planet and then eventually into the aperture of the telescope, um, the way that the light is changed when it went through that atmosphere is an indicator of what molecules might be present within that atmosphere. And by analyzing the data of the light hitting the telescope, scientists at NASA are now saying that dimethyl sulfide was detected. And the reason that molecule specifically is important is because at least here on Earth, that is only ever created through forms of life. It's not, it's not something Mm -hmm. that is occurring unless it's life. So that would be, I mean, and they say they're going to be analyzing this data for a whole year, but that would be directly pointing to evidence that there is life outside of our solar system that we are not observing directly, but observing indirectly through things that they have created, which leads me to the point I said it was related to yours because perhaps there was a process or something that we don't know about here on earth that was able to create this molecule. That's crazy. Going back to what you said about aliens, just with general alien talk, I saw this thing somewhere where essentially we often, there's the constant like fear of like intelligent life out there that comes and dominates and takes over earth. Yeah. And in reality, that's every science fiction plot. Exactly. Yeah. And just every, so apparently that kind of exemplifies our subconscious nature that that's actually what we are and what we would be like. Oh, we were discovered. I think Neil said the same thing when he was on our podcast. It's like the reason we make movies fearing that sort of instance is because that's exactly how we think we would act if we came upon another civilization that we deemed to be less intelligent than our own. I mean, it's what we do with animals here on Earth anyway. It's like he was comparing um, that situation to like you looking at worms, you know? It's like you're not interested in worms or what happens to them or their outcome or whatever, you know? And you might feel the same way if you came across... Um, a species on a different planet. But I'm inclined to believe that we would be so in awe of something outside of our own planet that that might change our views. I mean, yeah, I think as a first time, definitely like if it was our first time ever viewing alien life, but like if we were like used to it, we'd we'd conquered a couple civilizations, maybe we wouldn't care as much. I don't know. Anyway, let's roll right into quantum computing now, guys, um, to wrap up our conversation from last week. Richard... Feynman? I think his name is Feynman. Feynman? Richard Feynman. See, I got to leave it up to the actual smart people here to correct me on stuff. Uh, Richard Richard Feynman is like the founder of what's known as quantum electrodynamics. And going back to last episode when we talked about how small transistors can get on chips, thinking about like what is the actual limit of the size of a transistor, he's like, well, what could be smaller than or more perfect than something that literally is the size of the atom? And later... Um, 1981, this guy named Paul ben- Benioff, Benioff, Joe, do you want to correct me on that one? I don't know that one. Okay. <laughs> Paul, his name is Paul, um, in 1981 is credited with then first applying quantum theory to computers. I think a good just general theme to understand today is that reality, the, the, the things that 
in reality, in reality itself, the things that we want to model with quantum computers are not as simple as ones and zeros like in a classical computer. It's much more complex. It could be a zero, a one, or anything in between, which leads us into quantum computing. Real life is running on quantum physics, and it's going to take something like a quantum machine to be able to solve those problems pertaining to our world, like modeling the behavior of different atoms or virtually any application you can think of using quantum computers. Yeah, I think, well, there's just a very different... We use them for very different applications compared to a regular computer. At least definitely right now. Yeah, and I think people people definitely have a misunderstanding of what they do and like the limitations that they have. Yeah. Regular computers actually use ones and zeros. That's a bit. Quantum computers use something called a qubit. And the interesting thing about a qubit is that it serves or it can serve as both processing power and memory. Um, So it has capabilities beyond kind of the ones and zeros that we think of with a traditional computer. And actually, not only could could they be a one or a zero, but they could be anything in between and they could be all of that at the same time. And if that sounds kind of like nuts and impossible, I'm with you because it's still, even now after like all this research I've done on quantum computers, it's still a hard idea to wrap your head around. But yeah, quantum computers actually are able to do a one or a zero at the exact same time. One of the ways that they create qubits is by measuring the state of an electron. And an electron has a property called its spin. You can kind of think of it as like a magnet. So it's either pointing north or south, or they either have upspin or downspin, but they're also able to have any amount of spin in between. And we can measure that and then determine what percentage of upspin and what percentage of downspin the electron has. Yeah, and that's because an electron, even though we learn about it in classical physics, like it's a particle, an electron is actually a particle and a wave at the same time. It's something a little more complex than just one thing with one property at one time. Right. This is what I'll say about quantum computers and their use right now and how they kind of came into um, development. So in the early 2000s, they were, this is when they are first being developed and they're using just a couple atoms at a time to represent uh, these qubits. And what they would do is they would manipulate them with radio frequencies or electromagnetic pulses to solve mathematical problems. And at first, this is just things like finding the prime factors of numbers for very even small prime numbers, sure. you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no factors of prime numbers, but... No, but. there are factors of... Um, there, sorry. No, no, no. The prime factors <laughs> of numbers. Yeah, like 77 is 11 and 7. That's the one I usually think of. 11 and 7 are prime numbers. Okay, sure. That's what I mean. Um, now... By 2007, these quantum computers have evolved from something that's just doing these simple mathematical calculations to something that's solving uh, Sudoku, which, Judd, you actually mentioned um, something about how quantum computers are, or regular computers are better at telling us we got a puzzle like Sudoku right or wrong than actually solving it themselves, but that quantum computers are now stepping into that domain of being able to take over and do the actual solving. Yeah, I think we should talk about that a little bit later after. Sure. It's one of the problems that quantum computing is supposed to be able to solve. Yeah. Now, quantum computing um, throughout the 2000s and now into today uh, was building and building, and people are anticipating something called quantum supremacy. And the kind of typical definition of this is when a quantum computer can solve a problem that a classical computer can't 
in any feasible amount of time. Regardless of the nature of that problem, if a, if a quantum computer can do something a classical computer can't, that would be considered quantum supremacy, essentially meaning we're now stepping over the boundary of what we can do with a classical computer. Um, anyway, Michio Kaku wrote a book about quantum supremacy called Quantum Supremacy. And you know what's funny about it is when I, it was literally like last week when I started getting really into this stuff, that day, sometime last week, I found out, I was like, oh, this guy wrote a book about it. That might be interesting to read. On my walk home, I kid you not, I saw somebody reading it. It was the first time I ever seen that book That's crazy. ever. Like what a coincidence. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say something, but I was like, that's just weird. Like, I'm going to leave this person. I just saw that book, book online. Yeah, um, and then they'd be like, okay, thanks, I guess. Um, anyway, so about quantum supremacy. In 2019, Google actually achieved um, the first instance of quantum supremacy. It's a little debated, typically, by the companies that are Google's competitors, like IBM, whether or not this actually counts as quantum supremacy. But I'll let you know what you, th- or I'll let that be up to you. So they took their quantum computer called Sycamore, which has 53 qubits. And what they were able to do essentially is do a calculation in 200 seconds. They broke this question down and tried to feed it to a classical computer and then estimated how long it would take if they gave the classical computer the whole question in itself. And it was estimated that it would take the other computer 10,000 years. And although those estimates then show that eventually the classical computer could do it, it's not a feasible amount of time, uh, so it's basically negligible, right? Sure. I think that's the right use of that word, negligible. Negligible? Not really. I feel like oh. it's just like the two. It's not the, fast enough. <laughs> the two hundred seconds would be the negligible one compared to the ten thousand. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the calculation that they were doing in this test wasn't very useful, uh, but it was designed with the sole purpose of demonstrating quantum supremacy. And this research was then published in the Nature Journal, which is like the most prestigious science journal ever. So that would be very cool. Something that uh, is popping up in my head now is with quantum computers, how will that work with AI? Will AI influence quantum computers in the sense of making them better or understanding them or will quantum computers be a way to back up ai what if it's a like a collaborative relationship symbiotic yeah symbiotic what a great that is there we go that is a great word forget negligible word of the day used it right yeah nate maybe that's a question we can answer once we have a better understanding of how quantum computers work yeah agreed judd would you mind explaining that to the average listener sure so and I feel I'm like leaving the hardest part of the episode to you. <laughs> but it's I, really, I don't want to do it. I'm not like diving into crazy. Yeah, I think good. it's it's not it's not something that and someone who doesn't study quantum physics is really gonna understand, and I don't either. So how am I gonna explain it? <laughs> um but yeah, so like we've kind of said, a normal computer uses classical bits, which is can be represented as a one or zero, whereas a quantum computer uses qubits, which can be one, zero, anything in between, or both. Um so qubits are essentially just a particle that has some sort of spin that scientists are able to contain inside of a qubit and then somehow measure. And so these can be protons, nuclei of an atom, or electrons. I don't really know how the, like, they measure the spin on the electron. I'm sure there's some kind of crazy cool way to do it, um, but I don't actually know that way. But I do know that there's some basic hardware components um, that every quantum computer has to have. So it has to have a quantum data plane. And so this is where the the, phys- the qubits are physically stored and like, like where all the, the particles structural. are existing and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. all the structure to support them. 
And then there's a control and measure a control and measurement plane. So this is where the hardware to measure the state of the qubit is is stored and then control all that. And then there's also a control processor plane, which takes the data from the measurement plane and converts it into something that we can read or or process. And I think a huge part of the quantum computer too, if I'm not mistaken, is like the part that can almost get as big as a car is the cooling system. Yeah. Because quantum computers we need these electron. We need to control a particle, and particles inherently move really, really fast, and are very hard to uh, therefore control. Like I said, so we need to decrease the temperature to basically near absolute zero, so that we can get these particles, for lack of a better term, like in rhythm, in sync with each other. Right. Yeah. So I think what one thing that people don't maybe don't know is that. That you don't, you can't make something cold. You can only take heat heat out away. Of it. Yeah. So in order to to do that, you have to make something else colder than what you're taking it away from. So making something zero degrees well is impossible. First of all, or not impossible. I mean, absolute zero is impossible. It's impossible. Zero yeah. degrees isn't that much, or isn't that bad? The only, the way that your air conditioner works is by manipulating the pressure of the air to to make it perceived to be colder so that the heat will flow out. And so to make something yeah, you, to make something extremely extremely cold requires essentially air conditioner. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a we have a car-sized uh absolute zero almost air conditioner that's keeping these particles cold so that we can actually do stuff with them. It's funny thing is um let's talk about like the spin up and spin down thing you're talking about, Judd. Let's say spin up represents a 1 and spin down represents a 0. Now if I'm a particle, let's say, let's say even just for now, I'm a one or I'm a zero. Yeah. If you're a particle and I haven't been measured yet, if I'm a qubit, I can be either, right? Yeah. So I talked about qubits being able to be processors and storage. So as long as we don't haven't measured them yet, they're storing both values. Yeah. And so if I just took 20 qubits, that's it. Uh, in, or even, yeah, let's say 20. If we have 20 ones or zeros, like a typical computer, typical bits. If I have 20 ones or zeros, that's it. That's all they are. I have a string. I have one selection, one combination of 20 ones and zeros. But as long as a qubit is able to be both at the same time, then a qubit, just 20 of them, already gets you a million different states, a million different combinations. That's just 20 too. So that processing power is, let's say that 20 string of ones and zeros is like a guess at a problem, right? Nate, if you get to just write out by hand these 20 strings of ones and zeros, like back to back and just keep guessing, it's going to take you a while. But if I, on the other hand, am a string of 20 qubits and already contain over a million states at once, I can make a million guesses at once. Essentially, it's a little it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. But you have all of this processing power and storage built into one um, system. 300 qubits, if we scale that up from 20 qubits to 300, which has already been done, by the way, by IBM, they have a quantum computer with over a thousand qubits, which is pretty large considering we were starting with just like a couple dozen in the start of the 2000s. Yeah. If I have over a thousand qubits, I have more states at once than there are particles in the observable universe. Literally, like, the, that is the, the cool number of the episode, is more particles than there are in the observable universe. 
Yeah, so you, to find out how many regular bits can be represented by a qubit, you take two to the power of however many qubits you have. Yeah. So, yeah, you get up to 20, you're at a million, you get three, 300, and you're at some crazy large number. Yeah. It's exponential. So yeah. the applications of that are literally endless. You can recreate and remodel, like, diseases, and you can even, I know there's, like, considering black holes and things like that, being able to recreate that and our understanding of you said, like of the universe will completely change and i looking back i know we did we talked about a quantum computer building a black hole at some point many many moons ago um but i wonder if revisiting that episode like listening to it i'll i'll make more sense to myself because i don't even think i understood just how insane a quantum computer is back then yeah i was just like oh it's a computer creating a black hole simulation like duh yeah i I think one people one thing that people should understand is like you're not going to watch YouTube on a quantum computer or and you're not going to stream. Imagine the resolution, bro. It would be <laughs> slower actually. So I think one thing people that misunderstand is individual calculations are actually going to get slower. It's just, we can do much more of them at one time. Quantum bits are entangled, meaning they're more dependent on each other. Like they're dependent on each other. So a, qu- a classical computer can't do it, but like a similar calculation is going to take longer for a, quantum computer however quantum computers unlock calculations that regular computers can't that's a, yeah that's a perfect way to describe it actually so you're saying quantum computers might not be faster in all applications but they have applications that aren't even feasible by regular computers yeah so like the number of calculations that you can do which are dependent on each other increases judd i guess i'm going to i'm going to explain something and you tell me if this is your understanding as well so I'm, what i'm trying to figure out what part of my goal with this episode was to figure out personally like how does a quantum computer how do the scientists using the quantum computer eventually find an answer to the problems because it's not like they have a keyboard and mouse and they're like clicking through the the quantum version of chrome you know how do they figure out what answer is really right and so the when you have this system of entangled particles and they contain superpositions of however many um states millions billions trillions and then you observe them you try to look at them or observe their values they're going to give you a one or a zero right that's how electrons work it exists as a wave until you observe it so if i observe this quantum computer suddenly those billions trillions of states are now just one so what we have to do is kind of observe them indirectly by manipulating them through either it's like radio waves or electromagnetic waves. Science, bottom line is scientists have methods to manipulate them and extract what is typically like frequency data of what answers they're getting from the quantum computer. So yeah. they're taking they're taking samples from this 200 billion trillion results or whatever they're taking samples from it and from what the samples are telling them they can extrapolate what that solution is i believe so like i said i don't really know how this the spin is observed or anything like that um they just look at it bro like what are you talking about like (laughs) we look really close it's spinning clockwise second pair the the scientist puts a second pair of glasses on oh yeah Yeah. second like a microscope glasses yeah Um, Judd, do you want to talk about PNP particles now? Or PNP, PNP, <sighs> NP you know what I'm talking P about. versus MP problems. Yes. 
Okay, so the first thing to address when talking about this is the Millennium Prize problems. So P versus NP is one of seven Millennium Prize problems, which the Clay Mathematics Institute has placed a bounty of $1 million on each of them. Yeah. So if you and this was released when? When were the Millennium Prize problems? The year 2000. Yeah. So ever, And they did it in 1900 as well, right? Yeah. So, so it's a centennial um, well, they actually didn't thing. Uh, so it's the centennial problem. But In a way. So like they they released in 1900. There was a – it wasn't released by the Clay Institute. Okay. Um, it was released by a guy named – David Hilbert. Was and he also offering a million? Because back then, that's no. crazy. No, he was... So he just came up with these 23 problems that like, were pretty big in mathematics at the time and would have pretty big implications on like, the future of mathematics and how it developed in the 20th century. And so he had 23 problems, most of which are solved today, some of which are too vague to ever really solve. People didn't really know what he was saying by the like when he phrased the question. Um, so he had a list of 23 problems in the 19, 1900 um, that he w proposed to be solved, most of which are solved, the ones that aren't, and a couple more are the Millennium Prize problems. Oh, so they carried over from the 1900s into the 2000s. Yeah, so okay. still no one's really solved these. Um, but so if you want to get make a million dollars, just go, you know, learn math. You know, the biggest mathematicians in the world are all working on these problems and yeah. no one's been able to solve them, but you can According do it. According to that last that a hundred years, the expected value of return is zero. So <laughs> go for it, man. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Well, one person has solved one of them. Oh, shoot. That's cool. So there's only six left, but... Is his name start with ch and end with at GPT? Um, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no chat GPT was involved, but it wouldn't be able to because it just uses data from... You're right, you're right. The yeah, internet it for previously. Okay. Um, but anyways, the one person solved it. He built his work based on somebody else's work. So he said, I'm not going to take the prize unless you also give him the prize. And then they didn't want to do that. So he ended up, nobody got the million dollars. What? So, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, the Clay, Clay Institute still has the million, um, even though they were willing to give it to him, but he didn't want it. Wow. So back to P versus MP. This is one of the seven millennium prize problems. Um, the idea is that a P problem is a problem that a classical computer can solve in a reasonable amount of time. So five plus five is 10. An NP problem is a problem that we can't solve with a classical computer, but we can check if our answer is right within a reasonable amount of time. So for example, let's say we have a Sudoku grid. So let's say we make it 10,000 grids by 10,000 grids. We make it really big. Yeah. And the, the amount of time it's gonna take a classical computer to solve that is going to take a very long time, even just to place one number. But you're saying it can check our answer pretty easily. But right, if we just put a five in one of the boxes, we can say, okay, is there a five in this, another five in this box? No. Is there a five in this row or column? No. Okay, it works. Got it. We can check our answer really quick, but we can't solve the entire grid very fast. It's going to take a long time because we have to check each and every square and go through that whole thing. However, a quantum computer, we are able to determine many values all at once, yeah. um, which is essentially the problem with these NP-type problems. Have you guys heard this theory about unless it's observed, it doesn't actually happen? For example, if like I'm on a field and I see a cow and then I turn around, I don't see the cow, no one sees the cow, 
How can it be there? Like how a tree be falls there? in the forest, does anybody hear it? Exactly. If okay. it's not heard, then if it's not observed, then does it really happen? And so with these electron things, keeping it at a more understandable level to normal people like me, like when we measure it, that's where it is. But when it's not, when we're not observing it, it's not there. It's not there. And it is there. But it is everything there. everything in between. Anyway, we got to wrap this back up into quantum computing, <laughs> Judd. So this yeah, is, I go off. Yeah, computers. Let's talk about computers. Um, So I mentioned at the start of the episode, these quantum computers are literally the next revolution in computing. They are They hold the power to do things that a classical computer could not. And eventually, we'll be able to do the things that classical computers can faster than them. So, like... Just like last episode, we talked about going from mechanical computers to digital. Now we're transitioning from digital to quantum. And all the big players like IBM, NVIDIA, Google are getting involved. And they can. the interesting thing, actually, is I was watching a Veritasium video on this last night. They can crack virtually any encryption that is used today, a quantum computer. And so in January of this year, Congress passed a bill saying that all agencies need to transition to creating encryption schemes that are quantum resistant. So all our government agencies right now are scurrying to create something that won't be hackable by a quantum computer, which, spoiler alert, is really hard. And let me explain why. A traditional encryption of today is something along the lines of, Nate, you and I have two prime numbers. There are prime numbers and nobody else knows them. And if I need to encrypt something to send to you, send to you, I'm going to multiply these two prime numbers together, which are huge prime numbers, by the way. And then you have this giant number, which finding the original prime numbers that I had is very difficult. Problem is, normal computers today, there are mathematical calculations that they can go through in order to try to find the factors, the prime factors but it takes an incredibly long amount of time. With a quantum computer, we can take a set of qubits and because they can represent so many states at once, we can essentially test a bunch of different numbers, basically speed up the process of finding these two factors infinitely, infinitely mm -hmm. faster. Like, like I could go into explaining how this encryption works, but it's not worth it because it, the, the, the idea is that we just, we have to guess and check if we're going to decrypt something. That's why like if you've ever seen in a movie, there's like a progress bar of like they're hacking in and stuff like that. It's like, or they're, it's testing all the different password combinations and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? Like the numbers yeah. are filtering through the possible combinations until eventually the screen lights up green. With a quantum computer, it already has, can test a bunch of those at once. And by manipulating this entanglement of qubits with radio waves or electromagnetic waves or whatever, we can indirectly, we can get kind of frequency information about what numbers they're, um, they're outputting and how close they are to like hitting the right answer and then extrapolate from that and kind of figure out the right answer. Yeah. Bottom line is instead of guessing one at a time, we can guess a bunch at a time. So how do you go about making a password that... That's the thing is there have been teams that are out right now. There's like been whole conferences about that where teams are supposed to come up with quantum proof encryption. And it's almost comical how some of these have even been broken just by regular, just I mean, regular computers. Because yeah. it, it's hard to create a new 
kind of algorithm. I think the new idea is like two-factor th- two authentication or, you know, like a biometric scan, like your face scan or your fingerprint or like asking you a personal question, like what's your dog's name or something like that. But even, but even that so, though, yeah, I think a quantum computer could like filter through all the potential names of your pet. Yeah, because like the password at the computer level at whatever server this password is held at is not being stored as right. Well, uh, a dog, think, your dog's name. It's being stored as ones and zeros and those ones and zeros can be broken. And I think it's the... It's more about, I think, than the two-factor authentication, which is just, you know, you have to, you receive a text on your phone and then you have to, you know, put in the code or, well, not even, and they would have to move away from putting in a code even because you could input all the codes um, at once, but. You know what is quantum proof is mechanical locks. I'm thinking that new, like big servers where important data is stored. And by the way, speaking of like big data and metadata and stuff that people like is collected from you on a daily basis, people way overestimate how important their single data actually is. That's so It true. has little value alone. It has no value alone. And no one cares if I watch videos of cats versus if I'm wa- watching university podcasts. Exactly. Well, we care if you're watching university <laughs> podcasts versus videos of cats. But yeah, like, yeah, just <laughs> once, once you bring all this data together, yours with everybody else in the United States, that's when it matters. And I'm thinking wherever, where this stuff is stored, it's going to end up like we're going to transition back to if you you have two sets of keys and you're turning them and only then do the server banks come online where they're um, like able to be uh, where the data is able to be extracted. But like there are physical mechanical circuits that have to be completed. Right. So because the the next stage I was I was watching another video about this. If there is a big war in the future, hopefully there is not. Right. But if there is one because our whole world is digitalized, they're going to be targeting things we had never even thought of in past uh, international conflicts. Like now we have automated tractors. If somebody can hack into our tractors easily with a quantum computer, no matter the level of encryption, they can at the very least shut them down, which would mean we can't produce food. But at the most, they could even like run these tractors into buildings and potentially hurt people. So there is because there is this digital infrastructure in our United States, we need to be able to figure out how to lock it down before quantum computers are cracking it from other countries around the world and causing serious damage. That's a scary thing. And that's probably going to create even a bigger divide between obviously as education grows in countries, you have this gap between less developed countries and more developed countries. But now with this technology and like access to quantum computers, how much of an advantage will that give countries that are able to figure that out to less ones and will those countries even be able to keep up now that's a little off the topic of quantum computers but sure everything this whole episode has been off the topic but in a oh, great yeah, way I went off the topic but if we can bring anything let's try to bring it together with some closing thoughts you know we're gonna make a lot Good of things. new advancements such yeah. as like protein folding which could potentially cure cancer and like all these other problems we can model start, things that are complex. np problems yeah. are gonna start to fall yeah so pretty cool what is the np problem that you're looking forward to most being solved judd well, that protein folding one is pretty interesting, and I don't know all the specifics about it. It's just something that I've I've seen mentioned before and heard about. But just to and any other kind of simulation, either. I mean, in aerospace, um, it's a pretty big deal to be able to simulate accurately, and, and yeah. So being able to, there's a lot of particles being simulated all at once. So being able to like connect them together. Stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. literally just the Navier-Stokes is kind of a big big player in that. Yeah. So Fluid if we can prove it, stuff, that'd yeah. be cool. 
Yeah, I'm thinking, I like what you said about the protein folding because it just makes me think medical, I think, is the thing I'm looking forward to most in the application of quantum computing because, like, the human body, it's part of nature. It's complex. It's based off of quantum um, relationships, right, and things that, like, at a really small level we can't understand. What diseases are going to be toppled because we have the power to simulate virtually any combination of uh, variables and see how yeah. these molecules are interacting with each other and creating diseases or prohibiting us from um, fighting them off within our body or stuff like that. I think an interesting topic for another episode would be the small-scale chemical reactions that go on inside of our body and kind of like how that works. But I don't know. Who yeah. knows? Maybe quantum computers can make me taller. That'd be kind of cool. Is Dang, that the, is that the NP problem you're looking forward to? That's my solved? NP problem. That's an it. NP problem like a Nate Pinto problem. Oh, no oh, way. Who's Nate Pinto? Nate Pinto is probably one of the most attractive people I know. Pretty short. Oh, yeah. yeah pretty short guy. <laughs> I think the last thing that I want to say here is just that, so I think we alluded to it maybe earlier. There's this idea of decoherence, um, which you kind of talked a little bit about, Judd, which is just like the particles in order to get them entangled they have to be like kind of in sync we have to be able to control them uh properly and so that's why we get them really cold we need to also make sure that once we get them within coherence it's called uh, the opposite of decoherence imagine that um once we get them in coherence we have to be able to keep them there because the slightest um the slightest effects can knock them out of coherence right like they they need to be foolproof so that this system is always operating correctly so they're sensitive machines but the esa european space agency is doing some very interesting things with quantum computers to to decoherence proof them i guess such as flying you know the planes where they simulate the zero g yeah um and stuff like that in the back of them for testing and stuff they'll bring it up there and like shake it around they'll like drop it from 30 meters and stuff in this giant box um and they're actually doing like a pretty good job. Like they're figuring out how we can get this stuff to get um, into this quantum system state or whatever, and then keep it there. Yeah. And so with that being solved, perhaps we can start to make this whole quantum computing tech like more. I'm not saying that we're going to be creating quantum computer phones and stuff like that, but that's a big step in creating uh, or manu- being able to manufacture more quantum computers is like, you know, imagine the the next gen um, Best Buy help desk is like guys that are geek getting squad. your yeah the Geek Squad is now getting your computer back in coherence because uh, all your electrons are freaking out or something like that. I don't. The know. only issue with that is how complex they are. the The more complex computers get, the more skilled and tougher it will be for people to be able to fix it and understand it. It'll be a very much maybe easy for us to use. But to understand or to fix, yeah, yeah, it's gonna be. It's a lot like harder. what we talked about last episode. It, you, it's like uh, the the skill gap increases yeah. when the systems get more complex. But eventually, they'll uh, as computers get better and better, they do the opposite. Exactly. Well, I think that about wraps it up. How about I finish off with a dad joke? <sighs> okay, I was gonna finish off Whatever, with just yeah. like, oh, no, like, that's just, cool. Let him do his dad yeah. joke. Yeah. Dad joke. All right, so. My ex-girlfriend, right? She. This is God. This is not a dad no, joke. No, this is not. It a is. Joke. It is. It this is. is like one of no, those TikToks where he's like, "Okay, life advice," and then he proceeds to say the craziest <laughs> stuff you've ever heard. Okay. All right, we'll give it a chance. Keep okay. going, it. Keep going. So my ex, she was upset that I have a really bad sense of direction, 
So I got up and write. No, you meant to say got up and oh I'm gonna my go. gosh, I get it. You, that was on, bad. I'm out. You made him leave. Nah, he liked it. He no, just that was horrible. He's he, holding in his laugh right now as he's walking away. <laughs> he actually he actually just wants to go secretly into the corner so he can crack up Nate. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for that one. Let's get the high five on the mic here. That's decent.